We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned to the end of the interview, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Niall Murphy, CEO and founder of everything. Niall is a serial entrepreneur in the technology and communications space. He's Irish born, but grew up in South Africa and trained as a computer scientist. He was an advisor under the transition to the African National Congress in the early 90s and learned to plan by going back for, backwards from what would be needed in the future. His other ventures have included one of the first ISP companies in South Africa and a Wi-Fi company in Europe in the early 2000s. Niall came up with the idea for everything after hearing someone ask, why can't I Google my shoes? Hmm, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> the mission of everything is to provide data and information on products all around the world, providing insight into where a product comes from, what it's made of, and where it ends up, and much, much more. He sees this mission as tied to the project of sustainability. As for an example, we can better understand what's in a piece of clothing so that it can be recycled instead of just incinerated. It can also be used for tracing food at a time when people are increasingly wanting to know exactly where their food comes from and how it was grown or made. Niall also talks about the challenges in starting a business whose market hasn't been found or even formed yet, and what to do to ensure that you're ready to jump in when demand hits. Now, let's get better together. Niall Murphy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Well, it is a pleasure to talk to a fellow hardware slash software entrepreneur that is hardcore into it as I am with your with your startup now, Everything, which is a bold statement, I must admit. Pretty cool, though. <laughs> I love the fact that... Always wanted to be the founder of everything. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, I never thought of it that way. That's really cool. I like that. I like that. So... Uh, um, and you've had a long career as a serial entrepreneur, and which I'm going to love to, to dig into. But uh, before we do that, why don't you tell me how you got to do what you're doing today? You know, I was listening to a, um, a panel discussion at South by Southwest uh, way back in 2007. And uh, Bruce Sterling, who's a, a design uh, 
guru and 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 actually sci-fi writer that I'm a big fan of. Anyway, he he had this throwaway statement he made during the discussion on this panel, which was like, "Why can't I Google my shoes?" He said, right, and uh, and that question really stuck in my head. Right? Why isn't there an index of the world's stuff? I mean, I can Google a human being, right, but I can't. I can't Google a thing, right? I can't stand on a street corner and ask Google Maps to tell me where a size 11 pair of sneakers is that I want of a particular style, right? And uh, so that that really stuck with me, and uh, and that was the genesis of of everything. Which uh, is, is is mission is pretty simple. We want to connect every consumer product in the world to the web, and and uh, and create that uh, Internet of Things, if if, if you like. Um, and uh, but a sort of deeper purpose there is that yeah, there's four trillion consumer products made and sold every year in this world, and uh, yet it's very hard for people to answer these questions of where is a thing, who's got it, what are they doing with it, and when you look at challenges like sustainability, which is obviously facing our our, our an existential threat, you could say. As a computer scientist, right? If you don't have any analytical instrumentation about where things are, it's pretty difficult to to attack that kind of problem. So that that's kind of the context of of why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah, like you said, I'm <laughs> I'm the founder of everything. I love I love <laughs> that line. And you know, as someone <clears throat> who's been in IoT and RFID as well, um, I can attest to the fact that yeah, it's a challenge to try to figure out the physical world, like how it relates to space and time. And I find it really interesting that a lot of times they thought RFID was going to be the thing that did this. And, you know, back in the day when we were doing RFID stuff at one of my old companies, you know, we, we had this idea, we were going to tag every pill, every like literal pharmaceutical pill on the planet, which bold statement, but the, the reason was, is that these are valuable and, you know, have implications. Uh, and to your point about sustainability and like where things are, I think there is some deeper need to understand the flow of goods and services, but particularly goods like things. And so how, how do you guys go about doing that? Because four trillion things is a lot of things. <laughs> it's like a lot of things to figure <laughs> out. So it's clearly everything, right? We're going we're gonna, gonna to keep on using that joke because I love it. Right? <laughs> well, you know, I- the, the I, I as a technologist, uh, the, the uh, I always like the concept that anything you can imagine ultimately is is essentially deliverable, right? And uh, um, anybody who's watched a Star Trek episode from twenty five years ago will 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 attest to the fact that we're largely living it right now. But um, the the way that we go about doing that is. Uh, we've got we've got some key technologies that have become ubiquitous, right? I mean, the World Wide Web is the most efficient information organization infrastructure ever created, right? It's 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 possible to give a web address to every single star in our in our galaxy, right? There's enough addressable space to do that, and so we can certainly give a web address to every single thing that we that we make and and thanks to cloud computing and all the rest the marginal cost of doing that is really low um and and so that's why the, the web of things that my co-founder Don Gennard invented at, at MIT that is really that concept well let's give an identity on the web to everything because we can literally can do that right and we can provide a a, a, a digital identity to all things 
And so then really the question becomes, how do you link that digital identity to the physical thing? And, and it, it turns out now we have a pretty rich and increasingly rich range of technologies to do it, right? So whether it's printing an identity, I mean, you know, QR code or uh, other forms of, of, of scannable identity or uh, you know, decreasing footprints of, uh, of RF antenna in an RF, RF antenna now without a memory chip and just just in, encoding a web address so you can link that to uh, to its to its digital identity in the cloud. That's a much lower cost item than it would have been you know a, a decade ago. Um, and then you add the world's smartphone infrastructure, which we now have you know half the planet running around with a with a, a fully equipped mobile sensing device, right? <laughs> and uh, and that's a, a massive data capture infrastructure. Um, so whether it's a farmer in Kenya who's able to capture information about the the avocados that they are growing, or whether it's a consumer in Macy's interacting with a Ralph Lauren polo shirt, right? The, both of those are able to capture data about things, and they can do that either with a Bluetooth interface or with a camera interface scanning a code or or uh, or with an NFC interface, for example, right? So there's that that's made it possible to capture data at an unprecedented scale from from things, right? So I, I, I don't think your aspiration of tagging a pill is un, unachievable at all. I think that uh, I think it's really just like, is it going to have an RF antenna on it? Probably not. Is it going to have a scannable identity on it? Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the, the way we were going to do it was we were going to put an RFID tag on it and we were going to put a, a one millimeter by one millimeter RFID tag on it. That's was this company Tagent that I used to work at a long time ago. Mm. And so, <clears throat> yeah, th- this, the Tagent thing was the classic technology in search of a problem, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I don't recommend people do because it is a lot harder to like find, you know, a home for a technology that was super revolutionary at the time. I mean, we, we put an antenna on a Silicon chip and it made it really small, which you means you could tag all these things, but you know, the, technical challenge was pretty steep. I mean, there was some stuff we were doing that, I mean, was super cutting edge that, you know, we just ran out of money and <laughs> didn't have enough money to properly iterate on it. And the the thing that's really interesting is that <clears throat> that idea of, of, okay, a, and, you know, an, an addressable code and something that's going to be on every physical thing has, I mean, it's got all sorts of implications for privacy and, you know, like you can imagine, right? Like even IoT and even smartphones, people are really getting bent about that. Um, But I'm curious to know, like, have you always been fascinated with this kind of thing? Or is this just something new or kind of what did you do before you literally tracked everything? Well, I am... so I, I said earlier, I'm a computer scientist by training, but I, I did, um, I, I, I'm Irish actually by birth, but I grew up in South Africa and I was privileged to be involved in the political change process way back in the, in the uh, early 90s in, in South Africa. It shows my age now. Um, but, I, but I got exposure to scenario planning and scenario thinking at that time and, and future thinking. So I've, I've generally adopted a, philosophy as a as as an entrepreneur trying to think backwards like what is an inevitable an inevitable thing um that 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 is just going to be there and 
Uh, and then uh, if that's an inevitable outcome, then let's think backwards to start a business uh, to deliver on that inevitable outcome, right? So in everything's context, it, having listened to that statement by, by Bruce Sterling, it was like, well, clearly every product in the world is going to be connected to the web. It's more a question of, of, of uh, when rather than if. And, and so let's invest in that. Before uh, founding everything, I'd co-founded a, a Wi-Fi company in the in the uh, early 2000s called the Cloud, uh, which became the largest public Wi-Fi operator in Europe. But that was started on a hypothesis that the mobile internet would become a thing, and that Wi-Fi technology would play a key role in that. And and I can remember having a, a rather bizarre conversation with some executives from. From McDonald's in the in the early 2000s, who said nobody will ever use a laptop in a McDonald's. Why would they do that? And then a couple of years later, we were <laughs> we, we 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 were cutting a deal with McDonald's, of right? Of course, but, yeah. But but, uh, but uh, you know, I think. Oh. Oh no! What happened? Oh, there we go. Nope. Hey, I'm sorry, I'm sorry there. My, my my power saving monitor decided to like do its thing. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Right? No, like, no problem. This sometimes happens. So uh, we were talking about McDonald's. So yeah, um, you could just sort of start from there. I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. So. So, and I think, as I said, I like to invest in these inevitabilities and, and that notion that every McDonald's obviously would become a Wi-Fi hotspot. So I think that's an important way of, of, of both rationalizing a, a business and actually how a technology might play a role, right, is to, is to think of it in a kind of a real-world uh, way. Um, and, um, and, and then look for... I get confidence in the fact that it feels like something's inevitable. Now, it still means that you've got to, you know, successfully execute against it, right? right? You've right, got to, right, you've right. got to be able to. Uh, it's not just going to happen. But, um, but, but, but if 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 one feels that that context of what it is that you're delivering is 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 uh, is maturing, uh, then then uh, I certainly get a lot of comfort from that and. Any business I've built before founding the cloud, I've founded an internet service provider in in um, in Southern Africa, and and that was yeah it yeah you know, obviously the internet was going to map out, but you can say obviously in hindsight, right? At the beginning of these things, it isn't necessarily so obvious, right? But uh, but but um, that's that's that that's the way I've kind of gone about gone about it, right? And and then just yeah, if you believe in that vision, uh, then just start doing it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> just go, go, uh, go, go after it. That's my that's my philosophy. Yeah, no, that's actually a really good point about like coming up with ideas to for a business or like as a young entrepreneur trying to figure out okay what 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 marketplace am I going to be in that's going to eventually grow into something that's actually gonna gonna matter right? I mean, th this was 
part of the challenge that we had at Tajin. I bring Tajin up because we were so ahead of the curve on this, you know, tagging all these pills and these small, really, really small RFID tags that RFID at the time was just not going anywhere. I mean, even to this day, it's not as ubiquitous as Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, cell phones, and even some of the other technologies. And part of the reason was, was it inevitable that this technology was actually going to be useful to people? And for a lot of times, people are like, well, I just use a QR code or a barcode. I mean, yeah. for a long time, even QR codes were like, what is, what do you need these things for? And then all of a sudden COVID hits and everyone's got a QR code for their menu. And you're like, oh, well, this is why, <laughs> you know, it's, and it's nutty, but yeah, but I think that people confuse often a technology with being a solution, right? And it, mm. and mm. and uh, in in building a business, and customers don't buy technology; customers buy outcomes. They buy they buy solutions. So it doesn't mean that you shouldn't build a technology. Uh, and clearly, technology allows you to create differential solutions. But it's a it's it's a big difference between. Uh, having a technology capability and innovating it. And, and it's, there's perfect opportunity to build value in innovating a technology and figuring out who's going to want to buy it to create solutions or uh, realizing you've got a technology and then saying, well, what kind of what kind of solution can this technology contribute towards solving and then centering on that? In the world of, of everything, I've talked about connecting everything to the web and digital identities in the cloud and so forth. Those are all... Those are all technologies, and there's, there's a nice vision of every product in the world connected to the web. But that that isn't a solution, right? The reason the reason we should do any of that is, you know, for example, that the counterfeit economy of the world's consumer goods is a 1.3 trillion dollar economy, right? Yeah. And and basically, that's a big analytics failure, right? So, yeah. so companies want to be able to counteract that problem, right? Um, or uh, People want to be able to um, recycle goods, but you can't recycle a good if you don't know what it's made of, right? That's why we incinerate 70% of the world's waste clothing because it's too expensive to sort it, right? And we right. don't know what it's what it's made of. So those are kind of solution areas that are that are important to attack and, and the technology gives us the ability to attack those solutions. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that, that was interesting that you talk about counterfeiting because one of the things that people were looking to use the Tajin technology for was to make a pedigree, so to speak, of a good, like luxury good, because mm-hmm. everyone knows that the same factory that makes the luxury goods during the day makes the knockoffs at night, roughly, you know, with some, you know, people just sort of know this. And, and, and part of some of these luxury brands didn't care because they're like, oh, it just makes our brand better. But as time goes on, <clears throat> it's going to be a hard thing about, oh, is this really real? I mean, you see this with this new NFT technology, right? Who who would have known <laughs> that these non-fungible to- or non-fungible or whatever tokens would be so huge, but then you see the real kind of value in having a unique digital identity that you can authenticate to be like, yeah, this is really what this is. I mean, and you could see this apply to pretty much everything, even like a parcel of land. Like I, I just bought a parcel, you know, I just bought a parcel of land and I had to go through a title company, you know, to like validate that I had the rights to it. And I'm looking through all this paperwork and some of the stuff was back in the 1920s and, and it took weeks and weeks and weeks for them to figure these things out. And I'm like, really? Like, 
the silly. Well, well the, the, I mean, the, the, whole, the whole of our, our commerce environment is, is dependent upon this ability to have possession and to prove possession or to prove that, that the thing that you're selling is the thing that, 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 the, that the person wants to buy and, and so forth, right? So, you know, whether it's a high-value item where, where you want to be able to substantiate that you own it and therefore you can sell it and somebody can have a guarantee of possession, that's one thing, and that's obviously where NFTs can, can add a lot of value. Um, or people want to know where something came from, right? I mean, in, mm. in food... Uh, as we know, there's a tremendous amount of lack of transparency in the food space, and mm -hmm. people are becoming increasingly concerned about what's actually in this thing, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so being able to, you know, there's only so much information you can fit on the on on the ingredients label of a of a package. So now it's possible for us to 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 capture all this traceability information and prove that this particular fish was farmed in this location and got to you like this and this is the carbon footprint of that and and so forth and and i think that that's becoming really really important to consumers um uh, and and obviously regulators and so forth and that's where that's where traceability of, of everything in the world is 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 going to create more value as as well as more more efficiency and more trust right that's that's ultimately what what people want to have yeah they want to know that that what they're buying is what they think it is and it's interesting yeah interesting and if you look at uh, you know the secondary market right i mean just to pick on the clothing industry right the secondary market of of apparel in in north america is growing almost 20 times faster than the primary market is right <laughs> and uh and 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 the biggest single friction in that market is the ability for people to have confidence that if i'm buying a secondhand you know, ralph lauren bomber jacket or levi's pair of jeans that they're the real thing right and yeah. and yeah, yeah. uh and and so uh, we've been doing quite a lot of work with the World Economic Forum and, and a consortium of, of other parties to be able to show how digital identity can be used to authenticate items in the secondhand market so that you know, people can have that confidence, right? And that helps the, the secondhand market create more value. Consumers will pay more for an item if they know that it's the real thing because effectively they're discounting it for, for the fact that there's a low right. trust. Right. And brands actually get to then participate in that second market like why shouldn't levi's make some more money if if they're if they're if they're selling if products being sold and and that obviously ultimately increase, increases sustainability so i i find that stuff super exciting that we can kind of get technology into those kind of solution uh, yeah environments. yeah 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 it's just so fascinating that sort of it's sort of these like first principles of the world i think it maybe it was ray dallow that would talk about, I mean, he has that book principles, right? So mm. <clears throat> of course he, he wrote the book on principles, but kind of your approach to figuring out what's the inevitable scenario in the future, then working back to figure out, okay, what, what can be, what company can be built, what technology is needed. Um, I think that's a really good approach because a lot of times, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, especially younger entrepreneurs will be like, oh, I'm in the game, getting in, new to the game, and I'm just going to scratch my own itch, which is fine. Like, oh, I want, I need to build this thing because I have this problem. And that's a great thing to do. But if that's not part of a bigger trend in the marketplace, I mean, this is how venture capital people think, right? 
they they don't necessarily care about your technology or company. They're looking at the broader market trend. I think they probably take your approach, like what's inevitable and then work our way back and what company should we invest in? And it could be they're going to invest in 10 different, as an example, 10 different IoT companies because no one really knows which one's going to win. But we all know it's inevitable that this is going to happen based on these fundamental principles of, of economics or the trends in the world. So, you know, at, it sounds like your whole career has just been writing these sort of these trends. And, and I'm curious, how, how early do you have to start building for this? Like in the case of Tagent, we were too early, like literally one, we were too early and two, we were a technology trying to solve, find a problem. Like, yeah. you know, eventually it was going to happen, but it, you know, ran out of money. <laughs> I, yeah. And I think, I, I guess it, it's, a, it's a very difficult question to answer, right? Timing is obviously everything, right? And you have to get in early enough that you're actually going to be able to secure an advantage as a, as a, as a pioneer of the space, right? Um, uh, but not uh, so early that you're going to run out of cash or, or you know, die on the journey to get to the point of inflection where the market you know, uh, escalates. And, and I think that, that, and I've certainly made this mistake in the past, is, is kind of not drinking your own Kool-Aid too much and pacing that, pacing that journey, watching the market data and reading when it's really going to uh, accelerate. That's crucial. Um, to then invest aggressively at the right time, right? So I don't think you can really start a business too early. What you can do is overcapitalize it too early. And, 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 uh, and so it's, it's sort of just getting that, that, that pacing uh, uh, right. That's, that's, that's really important. But then when it does move, right, the, the brisk is pioneers get, stood on by the by the by the herd that comes behind you right so you exactly. have to you, 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 you have to have acquired the you know the ip position and 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 yeah built other relationships right it's very rare i think that a business can all by itself achieve the market position i always look for what i call the rational irrational customer meaning who are the who are the early adopter customers who have a big enough reason to want to invest in in what you could say is it would be a bleeding edge solution or technology because the value of the solution is big enough to them that they that they that they're going to take that risk right there's lots of reasons why people should do things but people only do things when they really need to right so you've got to find those those uh, those early adopter customers and and work with them as allies and and uh, and they are the they're the truth finders, right? If you know, three makes a crowd, right? And once you once you start uh, making that work, uh, then 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 uh, you know, just just follow the natural progression. That's 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 uh, the way I think about it. Um, you know, surviving to the, the the start line essentially is the is the the hard part of early stage. Um, uh, startup work right and uh oh, totally and and then when you get to the start line which is when the market's really a driving adoption you've got product market fits and so forth then then it's surviving through the um through the adoption curve right and that's th- those are different problems <laughs> yeah no 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 i mean i think gardner had the 
what the technology hype curve, I think is Gartner. They have yeah. a very famous, you know, trough of sorrow or valley of despair <laughs> where, <laughs> where technologies go to die. There's the hype, you know, <clears throat> the massive hype, and then you get down into the valley. And I think, you know, to your point, it's that valley. You never know how long that valley of despair is going to be. Um, clearly, there's a signal on hype. And then who knows how long the valley of despair is going to be. But then you talk about the inflection point, like, oh, market adoption, product market fit, like this technology seems like, or this market or this feature or the solve, this problem is a big problem. And it's starting to gain momentum, you know? Yeah. But I also think it's a being conscious about what one's bringing to the table, right? So, I mean, as a, I think that, uh, you know, you could say that if, if, if you're reading about something, a lot, then you're too late, right, to start a business in it, right? But but um, uh, but I do think that there's a lot of innovation in just the interface to new technologies or the interface to new solutions or just actually the effect of marketing and sale of them, right? So productization is 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 a completely different art to actually technology development, and and there's a lot of value to be added in those in those environments, right? Um, so, you know, what, 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 are, what are those competencies? What are you actually selling? Are you selling a technology or are you selling the, the productization of it, right? And, uh, and, and um, um, I think it's, it's important to understand the, the answer to that question so you know kind of what type of business you're building. Yeah, <clears throat> the RFID industry had that problem about, I think it still does, maybe, maybe not now, but there was all these people building technologies but no one was solving solutions or integrating them together. I mean, like one of my, one of the famous companies is in Pinge that, 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 uh, that, you know, was this huge RFID company. And then they started to do more solutions, but the, the market, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I use RFID as an example, just because it's part of the internet of things. And it sounds like more smart home internet of things and kind of Bluetooth enabled location and all that stuff is taking off faster than, you know, this RFID stuff that's these small tags that are quote unquote cheap and, you know, barcode barcode replacement that no one wanted to replace a barcode. They're like, that's eh, good enough. Right. And I think this is the, this is the, the kind of the nut to crack, especially when you're a technology focused company, you, you were spot on when you talked about what, well, what's the customer pain? What, what solution are you providing the customer? And to pull the ego out of like your prowess and technical competency and building cool stuff, that I think is the art that's hard to do. And, and, and then having the discipline to say, we're too early, we're too late, you know, like, how, how do you, do you have like certain metrics that you kind of watch? Like you, you mentioned, if you're reading about it a lot, it's probably too late. Are there any kind of leading indicators or indicators before that, that sort of start to show, okay, this thing's going to start to take off? Well, I, I mean, I, I guess this is maybe a bit of a boring answer to it, but I like to analyze all of the unity economics, really understand the the value that, that the solution can create, right? So if you look at... Um, you look at... I'll, I'll give a really specific example, right? So customers... So a brand today is spending a certain amount of money through digital advertising to acquire customers, right? That, that so it costs you a certain amount of money per uh, customer acquisition, the CPA, right? That's a pretty that's a pretty obvious metric, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to put 
a digital, uh, digitized label on a product, and I'm going to have a consumer interact with that product, and that's how I'm going to acquire that customer information. Does the cost of putting that label on that product um, and, uh, and and operating that capability is that lower than the cost of the, the of a digital ad? Right. That's that because that's that's ultimately the business case. All of the enabling technologies are just the ingredients to facilitate that outcome. And that's what's really important to analyze, right? And you know, and the answer is yes, today for a connected pack, that that saves money to the to the customer. And I think that's the thing to keep oneself honest is to say, is the business case of or does the business case of these use cases stack up, right? And or, or does it not? Now, if you go back, you know, five or six years ago, did some work with Mondelez. We, you know, at the, the time they wanted to digitize. Uh, uh, some chocolate bars for a particular type of capability, and it it did not make sense that the increasing cost per chocolate bar to to add the the digitization at that time uh, and the the slowdown on the run rate of, of of the production line just it just you know whilst it was cool from a technical standpoint it didn't make sense from a business and operational perspective. Now that's changed completely, right? High-speed digital printing and 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 line serialization has moved completely now. So now it is economically feasible to to do that. So it didn't. It wasn't like the component technologies didn't exist; they did, but but the putting them together was just too expensive relative to the business case, and that's shifted. So that's what that's what I try to follow is like what where are we in terms of the economics of the outcome business case, does it make sense? And keep tracking that, right? Uh, and 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 determine whether whether you're at a, at a tipping point or or not. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Because <clears throat> that's, yeah, that's like not very sexy. <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> do some math, you know? But, yeah, exactly, but I mean, sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you know, unit economics is one of those things that, I mean, all, all venture capitalists, they ask you that question, like, you know, what's your long-term value? What's yeah. your unit economics for production? What's your customer acquisition cost? I mean, these are all like numbers yeah. that are, you should have a handle it, on, right? Yeah. And it may, it may not be today, right? It might yeah. be the unit economic today is wrong, but we can see that the unit economic in 18 months is going to be right. And therefore, um, you know, because Moore's law kind of plays out and things like that, right? right? So therefore, it's sensible to invest now because we know that we're gonna we're gonna yeah you know, we're gonna cross that 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 uh, that threshold in in eighteen months from now, right? It's just that that's what I try to kind of keep keep analyzing. You know, look at uh, applying um, artificial intelligence to counterfeit detection, which is something we're doing now, right? Now. You know, a couple of years ago, that was nuts, right? The cost of building a, a an audit and training a machine learning model to try and to try and detect a counterfeit item was was you know, was crazy, right? But if you just looked at the curve of where that cost of compute was going, and you know where we were where we were going with uh, with with the ability to train models and so forth, well, now we've become in an outcome where we can do that, right? And uh, and and so it's just understanding those components and and projecting them uh, projecting them forward. So now, the whole world of of, uh, of of sort of brand protection is 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 shifting from using sophisticated, you know, holographic labels and so forth to an environment now where we can use data science because it's become 
In fact, it's cheaper to compute that algorithm per item than it is to put some really expensive object uh, on or, or sensor on the on the device made of hardware, right? <laughs> and uh, yeah. and and obviously that yeah you know, that that's that's 180 degrees from where it was, uh, you know, five or six years ago. Oh yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up AI and machine learning because that's another one of those kind of industries where there's all this cool tech but no one's really using it or they say they're using it, but they're really not. They're literally doing, you know, pattern matching or whatever. And, um, and I've seen this in um, my friend, one of my friends has this podcast called uh, productive AI. And so he just talks to people about how they're actually using AI. Um, and man, as you mentioned, manufacturing is a good one because um, a lot of times people now are um, like, using AI to look at things to see if they're defective. And people have done this before. Don't get me wrong. This, this is nothing new, but with it, with AI, apparently when you train these algorithms, you can get much better at it. You can get faster. Um, you can increase the quality, but more importantly, to your point, you can also identify things. It's kind of like a digital footprint or mm. footprint or a fingerprint, sorry, not footprint. Um, and I'm just curious, how, how do you see like these, like, the con like kind of the convergence of digital identity and some of these machine learning and AI platforms, because a lot of like, again, a lot of entrepreneurs, they look at the broader AI ML market and they're like, Oh my gosh, this is shoot. Everyone wants to do this. But then again, it's, it's, I think it's in the hype. It's pretty It's hyped pretty hard, right? Like there's really not a lot of concrete evidence that this stuff works. I mean, you know, it's, you know, you've got to you've got to shrink things right down to really specific problems, I think, and focus on those really specific problems. And it's it's really then is just is that problem to a point you made earlier on? Is, are there enough people with that problem that that's a market, right? But like, you know, in what we're doing and at everything that that's firstly using digital identity that gives us an ability to generate data about things. Where are they in the world? That kind of information, right? Next. You you kind of want to the, the the when you when you're using crowdsourcing for data generation and so forth the data you're getting is 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 perhaps a bit noisy and and a, and a bit patchy right because guess what not every consumer scans every product they get their hands on and and so forth right <laughs> and yeah, and so so you know this is where AI can allow us to to fill in some of those gaps and clean up some of that 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 data because there's enough correlations across all of that that you can actually draw some some really interesting patterns and uh, so that's one thing is that you can use AI to 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 solve noisy data I mean Google's been doing this for years in search you know search capability right and uh, and then the second area that we're starting to uh, use this to so uh, I talked earlier on about counterfeit products, but the other one of the other big challenges is is uh, a parallel trade or gray marketing, right? Um, yeah, so the cosmetics industry, for example, suffers tremendously from from gray market, right? You're buying a, a lipstick and it's not supposed to be in the store that you're in. It's somebody smuggled it in from Mexico, whatever the case is, right? And mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and there it is. Now you can use AI. By collecting uh, samples of traceability information from around the world, we can actually build some predictive algorithms to detect uh, or suggest where 
parallel trade risks may be arising, right? And in mm. fact, where they may have originated, right? Mm. And mm. and uh, and so kind of think of it as like cyber sleuthing, basically, I suppose, right. by 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 looking at all where all the breadcrumbs are lying, right? And that's those are kind of areas of application. So, yeah, you know, I think the technology is super powerful. Um, but then you've got to focus it in on real specific problems and say, where, where, where does this add? Where does this add some value, right? And and in the world of 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 data aggregation, where you've got gaps or you've got noise or you've got incompatibilities uh, of of the way people describe things, I can tell you in the in the clothing industry. The number of ways to describe a white T-shirt is quite extraordinary, right? And uh, <laughs> and, and so so yeah, you kind of you kind of need an AI uh, capability to reconcile that. Yeah, it kind of <laughs> makes sense of the world. Yeah, no, yeah. There, there's an idea for everyone out there, like a shirt classifier for AI. I mean, it, this stuff just fascinates me to no end because you know I I use. I do use machine learning for some of on this podcast, like for co- for figuring out like trends in the data. Like, well, what do people talk about? You know, I've used some real simple stuff. Like I'm no expert. I just, I'm geek out on it, but you know, it's this whole concept of like experimentation and doing like what you're interested in and then figuring out, Oh, is this apply? You know, what, what does this apply to? So, you know, me, looking at machine learning and artificial intelligence is just from a pure curiosity point of view, um, knowing, I think to your point, knowing that in the future, this is going to be important. I don't know when, like, I don't know that gap, but we all know it's going this way because it has to, it just has to, there's no, the, the, the amount of complexity in the world is expanding. There's lots and lots of opportunity. It's, it's like only a matter of time before people figure this out, just like people figured out how to use a cell phone or people figured out how to, you know, use computing, you know, the, the famous quote from the old IBM CEO, like, ah, yeah, we only need like a thousand computers in the whole world. Yeah. (laughs) But but I think you're, you're, you're touching on a really important entrepreneurial theme, I think there, which is, which is about experimentation, right? You've got to kind of get going with something and, and I mean, uh, often, and I I think, engineer entrepreneurs are guilty of this they often have a sort of grand rigorous plan that they've figured out right and then and then the real world comes along and <laughs> annoyingly disrupts it right and uh and yeah, I, I think uh, really annoying. i think <laughs> you just gotta you've got to be able to adapt right i mean right, what right, Pica- right. picasso said that you know uh he starts drawing and then a picture happens right he doesn't he doesn't yep. think doesn't think about the picture first right and right and 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 it doesn't mean that you don't have a strategy and you don't have a plan, but but you've got to recognize that that yeah that adaptation is is at the end of the day that that's that's about finding fit right and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 so you know I know everybody says fail fast and so forth. What that really is about is not absolute failure. It's about continuous course correction and and adjustment. I think right and just. Think, learning um uh from what you what you hear and what you see gain adoption yeah no it's so so i'm glad you brought that up that's a really important thing about being able to adapt and zig and zag um you know that's especially engineers (laughs) when you said that it stung a little bit (laughs) (laughs) my grand i was actually talking to someone before i got on the call with you and he was saying the same thing he's great techie guy he's got this product he's working on and i'm kind of like yeah, well, maybe this summer you should just spend, you know, maybe promoting 
well, I got all these features, or I go, you know, man, it's good enough. Like get out there in the world, and, well, you know, cause it's what you're comfortable with. I mean, you know, you, you revert back, you always revert back to your training. You never really rise to the occasion. You fall back to your training and through training, you can get better. Right. But like, you're right. Like, Oh, how are you going to adjust and move and stuff? So. Well, I think that, I think that's where being, if you spend time selling, which we think every, obviously every entrepreneur has to do, right. But like, mm -hmm. that's, that's where you learn fast, right. What, if you, if you, if you try and tell the customer what they need, you're not going to get very far. If you, if, <laughs> if you, if you listen to what they need and, and, uh, uh, and then map into that. And that, that's just a, that's, that's a learning process. I think, right. I think that's crucial. Yeah, so I cool. certainly try and spend a significant proportion of my time in engaging with the market so I can understand where the market's at, what customers are really saying, um, and then how does that feed back to what, what, what the company thinks it wants to do, right? <laughs> and, right. Totally. Uh, and how it, totally. how it thinks it wants to do it. Yeah. Totally. So, uh, so, so what advice would you give the next generation of entrepreneur? Get out there and get on with it. Uh, I think, I think, um, you know, so I don't think these, these, these rules are any different, right? I think, um, you know, you've got to, yes, pay attention to what other people think, but, but most importantly, pay attention to what, you know, what the customers for, for your, for 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 your your solution if you like are are, are telling you and and uh um don't wait for anybody's permission <laughs> go 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 and uh just go and do it and um and stick with it right i think that there's a big difference between having a vision and and holding yourself to that vision and then how you choose to interpret that and translate that into product, uh, those are different things. And, and so I'd, I'd, uh, I always believe in sticking firmly to your vision and adapting your product. Mm. So stick to the vision, adapt the product. <clears throat> I like that. I like that. Well, well, Niall, thank you so much for being on the show. This has just been so, like I, like I told you before, before we started recording, I don't get to talk to many <laughs> hardware and software entrepreneurs. I'm trying more and more to like actively get them. Um, but there's, well, thank you. Thank yeah, you. More, it's been more, a pleasure uh, to talk. Yeah. There's just more, more cool things going on in this space. I mean, I think again, you're at the, I think you're at the point, like you said, <clears throat> there's this inflection point. Um, and who knows exactly where it is, but you get the sense that it's starting to inflect a little bit more. Like back when I was doing this RFID stuff, we had no idea. No one knew. Like, again, technology going after a problem, um, which in some cases works out and in other cases doesn't. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for your insights. He's just been great. Someone that's like been the serial entrepreneur and sort of has these kind of heuristics and thoughts and processes. So thanks again. Well, thanks for, thanks for doing this. You deliver a lot of value to a lot of people. So uh, much appreciated. Thanks Niall for a great interview. Now, as promised, here are some actionable insights that I got from my interview with Niall. Just get out there and get on with it. Niall says, don't wait for permission. Now this, we hear this a lot, right? You just got to go out and see what's going to stick, figure it out. 
Niall also advises that you stick with your vision, but be ready to adapt and overcome certain challenges. You might need to change your strategy or product, but keep your vision always in mind. And I've heard this one a lot as well, like the grand strategy or the big vision of where you're going. You may zig and zag, right, as you get there, but always have that vision in mind. It's basically your why. Try to be a pioneer, but be careful not to overcapitalize too soon. Read the market and make sure you have enough to keep you going until the market opens up. This is particularly important if you're building something that not, well, that doesn't really have a market yet, or there's inklings of the market, or you really don't know when it's going to take off. And I'm fully guilty of this <laughs> many, many times. So this one's especially uh, powerful for me because I have done so many startups where there was really no market for it yet. So there we go. Those are the actionable insights I learned from my interview with Niall. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.